Well, good morning, church. If, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you please to open them to Mark chapter 11, verse 17. Mark chapter 11, verse 17, one verse. And as you are turning there, I want to ask you a question. In the Bible, what is the first description that we have that is given to the people of God? What is the first identifier used of them in Scripture? Uh, maybe you think, well, it's got to be in Genesis, maybe Genesis 15, they're a, a descended uh, from Abraham. Or maybe you think, well, it's those who were circumcised. Or maybe you think a little later, descendants of, of Jacob, of, of Israel, or even later, those under the Mosaic law. That's the first identifier of God's people. Or you say, well, no, no, no. Surely, the first thing that identifies God's people in Scripture must be that they're a people of faith. Well, if you said that, you wouldn't be wrong. They needed faith, and certainly they had faith, but that faith was expressed in a specific way. And that expression of faith is found... Actually, at the end of a genealogy in Genesis chapter 4, one chapter after the fall, Genesis chapter 4, 26, it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the thing that marked out a people as God's people in the very opening chapters of the Bible is that they are a people who call upon the name of the Lord. They are a people who pray. Prayer is and always has been a pillar of the church and the identification of God's people. Tertullian, an early church father, he wrote in the third century, we gather in an assembly and as if we have formed a military unit, we force our way up to God by prayer. This power is pleasing to God. Likewise, Augustine, 200 years later, he tells us that Prayer was so fundamental to the church that Christians said goodbye by saying, remember me, shorthand for remember me in your prayers. And so prayer wasn't a, a fraction or a portion or a small part of what the church did in these early days. Prayer was the majority part. Just to give you another example of this, uh, much later, Consider this account from Robert Bailey. It's during the time of the Westminster Assembly in the 14 or in the 1640s. So he's he's recounting one of the meetings at the Westminster Assembly. He says, Dr. Twiss, having commenced the service with a short prayer, Mr. Stephen Marshall prayed large two hours, most divinely confessing the sins of the members of the assembly in a most wonderful pathetic and prudent way. Pathetic is in a, a passionate way. After Mr. Aerosmith preached an hour, then a psalm, after which Mr. Vines prayed nearly two hours. Mr. Palmer preached an hour, and Mr. Seaman prayed two hours, then a psalm. Mr. Henderson then spoke of the evils of the time and how they were to be remedied, and Dr. Twist closed the service with a short prayer and blessing. Now, short prayers compared to Two hours. Now again, this was not a regular prayer meeting. This was a special meeting for preaching and prayer. But the point remains. 
prayer has been an essential and vital, uh, has been as essential and vital to the health of the church as any preaching or study or practice or outreach or anything else. You cannot have a church without prayer. You will not be a Christian without prayer. And just as prayer calling out to the Lord marked the people of God at that pre-flood era, it is reaffirmed in our verse this morning by the Lord Jesus in Mark eleven seventeen, And He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word that guides us, that directs us, that chastens us for our good when we wander to the left or to the right. Thank You for Your Word that teaches us how we are to think about ourselves and about You and about Your church. We don't have the right to define it however we see fit, Lord. Even our own lives, we are slaves to Christ. You give us our marching orders. You tell us what we are to do and how we are to live and what we are to be. And I pray, Lord, that we would be the more diligent to yield ourselves to Your Word and not be like rebellious Israel or rebellious children who fight against the words of their Father. Lord, help us to be a people of Your Word and a people of prayer. I ask, Lord, that You would write this truth on our hearts this morning, that it would affect us in a lasting way so that we wouldn't be the same people leaving this building as the ones who came in this morning. Lord, work on our hearts this morning and direct us to be a praying people. Lord, help me to preach. Help us to hear. Lord, nothing will be done apart from Your grace and Your Spirit. And so it's to You we look with our hearts open and our hands raised to receive Your Word and what You would have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in recent years, it seems that prayer has fallen on hard times amongst God's people. I have difficulty believing that those words can sincerely come out of my mouth, but they can. And in spite of success in the church, by and large, in recent years, there's been a Reemergence of, of good theology, of right doctrine, and of a, a seriousness about falling, following the Lord, something that was sorely lacking in the decades prior. And we, we thank God for ending a famine of His Word and a famine of the knowledge about who He is. But since He has done such a thing, I mean almost everybody in this room, almost everybody in this room, you've come to Christ in the last 20 years. Do you realize that? Almost. There are a few exceptions, but almost everyone. Seeing how much He has done, shouldn't we spend more time thanking Him about it? A 2019 Crossway study found that among evangelicals, most spend less than 
20 minutes a day in prayer. And if you were to ask my opinion on that, the number is likely grossly overestimated. 20 minutes a day in prayer, probably less than five. But what's worse, when they were asked the question, have you prayed with others in the last three months? 94% answered no. Can you believe that? 94% of regularly praying, of professing Christians, go months at a time without praying with anybody else. Does that seem strange? That Christians don't regularly pray together? We kind of just assume that it's happening, and only when we stop to think about it like we are right now, does it actually sound alarm bells in the brain that something might be wrong. 94% of evangelical Christians can go three months without praying with anybody. Now, of course, it would be too much to take on the whole subject of prayer in one sermon, and I'm not going to try that, but we can limit the scope, and we will limit this morning to corporate prayer. Praying together. If we do that, Lord willing, we'll have something manageable. And So how should we, how should the church, how should Christ Community Church pray together? One objection occasionally raised regarding a prayer meeting is that it's not commanded in the Bible. And whoever says that, they're not wrong. There is no passage that commands the church to meet at a particular time during the week for a prayer meeting. There just isn't. And that being the case, if it's not commanded in Scripture, why have one? The answer is because many places in Scripture command us to pray with one another. There are. James 15, 16. It not only tells us to pray with one another, but to confess our sins to one another. Colossians 4, 20 admonishes the church to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That wasn't a command given to an individual. It was given to the church. And even in the Lord's Prayer, the the group aspect is emphasized over the individual, isn't it? How did Jesus teach His disciples to pray? Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. All of the pronouns are plural. This is a prayer meant to be prayed together. And so we're commanded. And clearly the expectation in the Bible is that the church, called a house of prayer, will pray together. But we don't only learn about church life together by the commands in Scripture. We also learn about how we're to live as a church together by example. What did the early Christians do? And of those examples, we have many in the book of Acts. Acts 2.42, for example. It's a, a summary statement of the early church. And so if you want to know what they were all about, here it is, verse 42 of chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread... And the prayers, they prayed together. The life of the church was defined by those four things. Preaching, fellowship, which was not hanging out. Fellowship means meeting the needs of one another, taking care of one another. Eating together, 
Maybe that's the spending time together. They're eating together and praying together. The early church was defined by those four pillars, and one of them was prayer. You have the same thing later in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, they're released from prison. They're told, don't preach anymore. And so there's, there's a problem. There's opposition starting to swell. How does the church respond? Verse 24, and when they, that's the church, when they heard of it, they lifted their voices together to God. They prayed. The gut instinct reaction of those early Christians was whenever trouble arose, take it to the Lord in prayer. It's the same thing in chapter 12. Peter is imprisoned again, and and this time they intend to kill him. When the church finds out that they don't go to the magistrate, they don't go to the governor, they immediately gather together to go to God. Verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And when those prayers were answered and Peter is released and he goes to find the church, do you know what he finds him doing? Verse 12, many gathered together praying. And so even though the Bible does not command a specific type or time or day for praying together, the clear expectation of Scripture The clear expectation, God's expectation of His people is that they will pray with one another and that they would do it regularly. Pray with one another regularly. And so if you've ever asked the question, why? In in our case, a Tuesday night prayer meeting, when none is commanded in the Bible, the answer is because we are commanded to pray together, both by imperative and example, and though the Scriptures give us liberty in determining how and when that happens, it most certainly expects it to be happening. And so we have a weekly weekly prayer meeting to make sure that we can pray with each other regularly. It is so that we can keep this command and example. And that doesn't mean you have to always be at this particular prayer meeting, you don't. But if that's you and you're not, all I would ask is, okay, when are you meeting together with other believers, right, with the church, for prayer? When's it happening? Like I said, it doesn't have to be here on Tuesday nights. Maybe you, you, you live far away and there's a, another church there that you have a good relationship with. You go there for their prayer meeting and you pray with them. Maybe you pray with uh, on Wednesday night with the women's meeting. But if you're not, not in, uh, uh, not praying with other believers and regular corporate prayer, if that's just not something you do, then you've got something to repent for and make right. Are you regularly, and this is a good word, not everyone can make it all the time, we know that, but are you regularly praying with God's people? Is it a, a priority in your life or in your family's schedule, praying with the people of God, approaching His throne together? Is it something you make time for in your busy schedules? Is it something that other things yield to and give way to? Praying with God's people. And if not, it must become one. 
The requirement in Scripture is clear. The expectation is unavoidable. And, and seeing that expectation, the next question is, well, how do we do it? How do we pray when we meet together? Some practical ways of praying together. And the first is that it's not personal praying. There, there is a difference between how you pray when you're alone and how you pray together. When you pray together, you're not praying about personal problems and personal struggles. You aren't monopolizing all the time either by being too long. A simple way to maintain the distinction between private prayer and corporate prayer is to avoid the words, I, me, and mine. Lord, help me with this. Forgive me for that. Lord, I just want to... I'm sure they're fine prayers. But when we meet together, it's not a place for and about to pray for yourself. It's a time to pray for others and for the community. And that doesn't mean if there's a particular burden you would like prayer for, you shouldn't bring it up. You should. Praying for those things, it's one of the ways that we bear one another's burdens. But listen, if you have ever been in a prayer meeting where people's prayers were completely focused on themselves, then you know what I'm talking about and you know how inappropriate it is. Just to give you an example, you say, okay, well, how does that work? Just take confession. When it comes to confession, we're told to confess our sins together. In a setting of public prayer, yes, it may be an individual sin being confessed, but it's a sin that has had an effect on the community. In the Old Testament, this was things like idolatry or intertwining with the pagans through marriage. Today, it would be sins like division and gossip and slander. Confess sins that are communal sins. It's not a time for rehearsing numerous personal struggles and fears and doubts and failures. And since there are many people to pray, it's best never to pray too long at once. It's not usually a problem but it can become one. There's nothing to prevent you from praying again later or praying long on your own, but long, drawn-out prayers can be a distraction to others. Spurgeon complained about this, saying, some pray me into a spirit, and others pray me out of it by undue length. <laughs> or another time, he said, it's strength, not length. Now, there are exceptions, of course, when a person is, is moved by the Spirit to prolonged prayer, but it will always be to the edification of the people, and it will never leave them longing for the amen. And so how do I avoid that? One way to avoid it is by being focused in your prayers. Vagueness is a curse. I think it was D.L. Moody, he said, I've heard some people pray, and he said they prayed the kind of prayers that should be cut off at the cut off at the beginning, cut off at the end, and burned in the middle. But you've heard people pray like, and they go on and on and on and on, and you know that they don't even know what they're doing. So it's better to pray for a few pointed minutes than aimlessly for an hour. And so give some thought beforehand to how you will pray. This is important. Give some, think about how you're going to pray. If you were going to meet with a, a dignitary in this world, and you had something very important you wanted to say to him or ask from them, from him, you would put some thought into it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't just go and, well, I'm just going to say the first thing that comes to my mind. No, you would think about it. You'd at least give five minutes to it. When we pray, we ought to at least do the same, give the same courtesy to the Lord God as we would to a 
a dignitary from the earth. Think about what you're going to say. I try on Tuesday nights to give some direction in what we should pray for, so if you find that helpful, think about those things and how best to bring them before the throne of God. Have a a focus and give some thought to your prayers. And most of us, by the way, we don't pray for too long. If anything, we overestimate how long we spend praying. That's why most people say they pray 20 minutes. The reality is probably closer to two minutes, you know. 26 second prayers throughout the day becomes 20 minutes of prayer. But be mindful of your time and point it in your prayers. Now, some of you might dread praying publicly because you dread to say anything publicly. Well, I can't let you off the hook entirely. But you can at least pay attention in the prayer meeting and guard your mind from wandering so that the end you may say, Amen, and and give your amen to the prayer. You can pray silently and affirm the prayers of, of others, and you do that, affirm those prayers with the word amen. It's not just how we end prayer. It actually has an important meaning, and it means this is true. So I want you to imagine a group of children who are playing together and then some disaster happens, right? Someone falls off of a something or something gets broken and you discover it. What would you do? Well, the first thing you would do is you ask one of the children, maybe the most reliable, the oldest, most responsible, what happened? And after that child explained the answer, do you know what would happen next? I know some of you do because you've experienced it. Another child is going to run up and say... Something along the lines of, that's true, that's what happened. Well, when that happens, what is the second child doing? He is affirming the story of the first. He is telling me that what I heard was reliable, and he is in full agreement on the matter. It is true. Well, when we pray together, the word, Amen, is that affirmation. You're agreeing with the prayer that you have heard. You're vocalizing your, uh, your, your unity, your union, your uh, backing of that prayer. And you may not be the one doing most of the praying. I would encourage you to, but maybe you just can't yet. But you can give your affirmation to what's been said by listening carefully to the others and giving your amen when they finish or during the prayer of something particularly said resonates with you. And so that's some of the the how, the mechanics of praying together. But what should we pray for? If not for personal help. It's not a personal prayer, then what should we take before the Lord when we come together? Well, the list is near endless. The the main focus is we're praying for the, the community. We're praying outwardly. But let me draw your attention to some examples from Scripture. And the first is, and over all of the others, our prayers are focused on the community, specifically the community of believers. We are to pray for the church. I think of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. It's at the dedication of the temple, and he is leading the congregation in prayer, and in doing so, every word from his mouth was a prayer to God on behalf of everybody in the kingdom. You can go and read it if you like. We we won't today for time's sake. 1 Kings 8, 22 through 61. 
1 Kings 8, 22-61. And in that prayer, he is asking God over and over and over again, remember your promises, remember your people. He prays, if they sin and repent and cry out to you, hear them. And so our public prayers are to be outwardly oriented, especially on the community of faith. And so you might pray about a particular problem that the church is facing, like vandalism or something like that. If there's a particular trial affecting a group in the church, lift them up. If an individual is suffering something exceptional, like Peter in prison, take it to the Lord in prayer. But corporate prayer focuses on those things that are facing the whole community. The whole church of God. Second is that we praise God with thanksgiving together in prayer. The Psalms are full of these communal praises to the Lord that are sung, but they're not just songs, they're prayers. And we ought to give thanks to God together. Again, this is not primarily for personal things. I mean, we are so individualistic in our thinking. It's just everywhere in our culture. And it affects us so much more than we realize. It makes corporate prayer difficult. We're, we're all so wrapped up in our own worlds. We all are. We have a hard time being genuinely thankful for the good things that happen to somebody else. It shouldn't be that way. We ought to praise God when good things happen to all of us. We ought to praise God for the good things He has done. And we ought to do it together. Third, we intercede. Again, our, our individualism makes it almost impossible to intercede for one another. And you say, what do you mean? Well, if somebody sins against you or you know that they are in sin, how do you pray? Do you pray, God, please forgive them for what they've done or what they've done to me? Or is the prayer usually some variation of, God, make them see the truth? God, make them say they're sorry. Make them see the wrong thing they've done. That's not intercession. It's not always wrong to pray like that, but certainly it isn't intercession. Intercession is when we pray that God would be merciful to others and not hold their sin against them, just like Christ has done for us. And we pray that whether they recognize their sin or not. We are praying for forgiveness on their behalf. Job does this, and it's an example. You can read it in the book of Job. It's held up as an example of his righteousness. What did he do? Every morning, it says, he would offer a sacrifice and he would pray for his children just in case the night before they sinned. So just in case they sinned and didn't know it, Job would offer a sacrifice and pray for them. And you think, well, what's the good of that? They should have been doing it themselves. That's what I mean when I say we're too individualistic to intercede. God can deal with people. And He's given us a ministry of intercession to plead on their behalf, whether they recognize their need, whether they want it or not, to pray and seek the forgiveness of the unrepentant. And when we meet together, we should intercede for one another and for those around us. Fourth, confession. We should confess our sins to God before one another in prayer. We are commanded to do it in James 16, and there are numerous examples of this in Scripture. 
Daniel prays like this in Daniel 9. Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 9. We ought to confess our sins, especially corporate sins, together. And also individual sins that affect the whole congregation, like gossip and lying and adultery and hypocrisy. I mean, just, just on confession. We don't only confess our sins when we first become believers. You know, confession, I, I did that well. I know that initial confession and repentance is unique. And you don't need to confess every sin you commit to be forgiven. I mean, just look at Martin Luther if you think you can. It drove him insane. But just as we have repented and trusted in the Lord initially, we continue trusting Him and repenting. And one of the ways that we do that is by the continual confession of sin. And the word confession, it means more than just getting something out into the open or uncovering something. In fact, that's not even what the root word means at all. Confession means to agree with. And confession, biblical confession, is agreeing with God. It's like this, you stand accused. And on one side, it's you. And you're given your argument about why you shouldn't be accused. And on the other side is God. And confession literally means you take God's side against yourself. You say, what does this have to do with public prayer? This is what it has to do with public prayer. As Christians, you cannot have confession of sin without also having the glory of the gospel of grace. Have you thought that before? Public confession in the church glorifies the mercy and the grace of God. It reminds us not only of our need for a Savior, but of the love and willingness of that Savior to forgive. See, confession, when it's happening in the context of the church amongst God's people, is always the confession of sins that are forgiven. But if there's never any confession of sin, it gives the impression that we don't have it. And we're just like every other religion, trying hard to get to heaven. But confession of sin publicly it's it's ruinous to that belief of all these other religions because it publicly acknowledges there is a heaven there is a god i've offended him i don't i i don't deserve to go there i can't get there i'm estranged from the lord and he sent someone to save me in spite of my sins and if i confess my sins he is faithful and just to purify me from all unrighteousness so confession exalts the gospel it exalts the love of God by acknowledging that our only hope is in the mercy and grace given through Jesus Christ. Confession of sin publicly exalts the mercy and gospel of God. Fifth, we pray for the direction of the church. Pray for those making decisions and and pray that those decisions that have to be made will be made rightly and Pray for them together. You see this in Acts 13. The church is praying together. We're told they're worshiping and fasting. And God sets apart Paul and Silas as His appointed instruments to reach the nations. God directs His church through prayer. And we come together if there are decisions that the church needs to make 
the congregation is not given ultimately the responsibility to make them, but they are given the responsibility to pray for direction and wisdom for those who will. Sixth, we pray for the advancing of the kingdom. This includes evangelism, missions, other churches in the community, anything that could be defined as God's kingdom advancing or growing. We're praying together that God would move out from where we are and have an impact on the world around us. We want to see the kingdom of God moving forward. We want to see people coming to Christ. We want to see communities changed. We want to see the Lord honored by the pouring out of His Spirit. And we're told to pray specifically for that to happen. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Seventh, and this might surprise you, we're told to pray corporately for boldness and spiritual power. Go back to Acts 4, verse 29. This is the prayer of the people together, the corporate prayer, after persecution began to happen. So persecution's coming, the church is in trouble. They go to the Lord together to pray. What do they pray for? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak with all boldness while You stretch out Your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Your holy servant Jesus. They're pray- what are they praying? Lord, give us boldness to continue to serve and speak even though we're being threatened and imprisoned. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. We can pray together for God to fill us with the Spirit and give us boldness for the Gospel's sake. And we ought to pray for that together as a church. We can pray for the courage and the strength to be the church, and we do it together as the church. And those are just some of the things that we should pray for when we come together. But before we can pray together, something has to happen. And that something is... We have to actually meet together. And unfortunately, there are hindrances to corporate prayer. And I don't mean obstacles that will stop you from praying. I mean there are things that will stop you from praying together. And one of those reasons, probably the worst reason that will stop you from praying together, is that you just don't think prayer is necessary. Either God has ordained all things, so why pray? Or, well, He doesn't really concern Himself with such things, or whatever reason it is, it's something to be repented of more than a question to be answered, because underpinning it is pride that is actually manifesting itself as trust. Now, I just trust in God's sovereignty. Well, that's good. Don't stop doing that, but do it in the same way the Lord and His apostles did. And and don't do it fatalistically so that you're encouraged to pray. The apostles in the early church understood God's sovereignty better than we probably do, and it drove them to prayer, not from prayer. And sometimes we say, yes, pray, but also use the means that God provides. And I agree. Use the means, but let's be honest. Very few people are tempted to ignore the means and rely too much on prayer. That's just not how we work. 
especially in 2023. Right? If there's a problem, we fix it. If there's a need, we meet it. And prayer is only reserved for when everything else has been exhausted. That's not how it ought to be, brothers and sisters. Prayer ought to be our first and best means of provision. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. It's our means of reconciliation. Father, forgive our sins as we forgive others. It's a means for seeking justice in the world. Proverbs 29, 26. I mean, everything. Take up the means, yes, but only after exhausting yourself in prayer. Now, as for the prayer meeting itself, there are some things that will inevitably prevent you from being there. There are some obstacles that you just can't get around. It might be a long drive to get into town. You might have to work that evening. You might have to watch your kids because they're too young to be out that late and you can't get a babysitter. And that's all understandable. But it doesn't make praying together something to just write off. It shouldn't be something to casually ignore without making an effort. We are called as Christians to, to fight for things. And, and like Tertullian said, forcing our way together to the throne of God is something we should fight for. And prayer is a great and wonderful privilege we should strive to enjoy together. So get a babysitter, or bring the children who can handle the later night, or, or drive in once a month and come on the days when you're not working, or guard the evening so it's free. Now, of course, it can't always happen, but, but don't let those things you cannot avoid become thieves that rob you of the joy of praying together with God's people. Don't give up that blessing without a fight. And that's one of the obstacles. There are others that don't physically prevent you from being at prayer meeting, but they lead you to decide against it. One of them is time with family. And trust me, everyone in this room knows how important time with your family is. You work five or six days a week, and in the evenings you just want to see the kids. Well, again, like I said, if some are old enough, bring them with you. You know if they can handle it or not. But if they can't, do you think that you're meeting with the church to pray, even praying for them, do you think that's going to be a hindrance to them in the long run? Do you think it's going to be a hindrance to your family in the long run? You know that it won't be. Your family and your home life is not going to suffer because of your presence at the prayer meeting. The opposite is more likely the case. Your family will be helped and encouraged by the prayers of the saints. And good work will be done in your own heart and it will lead to a flourishing in your family. You'll be setting a good foundation for the future. And I'm sure even if you don't always make it, wouldn't you be overjoyed if your own child, when they were older, they made every effort to be at prayer meeting and they accepted no excuse to miss it? If you saw that in your own child, would you say, that's great, that's what I want to see? Well, start by setting the example for them today. And lastly, and I think by far the most common reason people stay home from prayer meeting is they're just tired. That's probably number one. They just want some rest. Usually the case, nine times out of ten. It's evening. It's been a long day. I'm tired. Best thing to do would just be stay home and rest. I understand life is exhausting. And I know when I was younger, there was more than one occasion where I thought the same thing. Long day, cold day at work, hands hurt, I'm tired. Best thing for me to do is just to relax. And sometimes I would go to prayer meeting and a lot of times I would justify staying home. 
But when I went, every time, I noticed something. I was never more exhausted and tired after being at the prayer meeting. I actually felt less tired and better rested, restored. And it was every time. I'm not saying that necessarily it's the same for you. Maybe it is. I hope it is. But it was for me, and I couldn't figure it out, and I thought about it for a long time. And, and you might have your own explanation for what I said, or, you know, well, that was just your experience, not mine. Well, if all I had was my experience, you'd be right to say that, because we don't base our Christianity on the experiences of other believers. But that experience is backed up by Scripture. It corresponds with a profound theological truth. I just didn't know it at the time. You see, what I thought, maybe what you think, is what you really need when you're tired is to rest. Sit down, relax, unwind, and that's what will recharge you, and that's what will satisfy you, and that's what will fill you. And not the rest is bad. You know, sometimes we need to. We've been given one day in seven set aside for physical rest. But guess what? As Christians... We don't find our ultimate rest in relaxation or recreation. We find our rest, our true rest, in Christ. Right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Christian finds his rest, her rest, in Christ. And not only do we find rest in Him, He is the source from which all life flows. He is life. He is the resurrection and the life. And so when you're tired and exhausted and it feels like the life is sucked out of you, wouldn't it be appropriate then to seek Him for relief from your fatigue? To go to Him for rest? It is every bit as right and proper to go to Christ for rest as it is to drink from a fountain when you are thirsty. Consider the example Christ gave of this in Matthew 14. He is utterly exhausted at this point. He's had a day, a, a day, full day and night of ministry. His heart is burdened. Some of the disciples of John come and they tell him, John's dead. They, they killed him in prison. Cut off his head. He's weary now and so he, he goes across the Sea of Galilee. He wants to be alone. And when he does crosses the sea, everybody sees him going, they run around, get there ahead of them, and so when he lands on the shore, he's already tired, a day and night of ministry, here's the worst news he could hear, he gets to the shore, and there's thousands and thousands of people there. He sees them, what does he do? He has compassion on them, and he teaches them again all day, and then he feeds the 5,000 plus of them in the evening... And after doing all of that, what does Jesus do to recover? He sends His disciples away across the sea. He dismisses the crowd, sends them home, and He goes by Himself to be alone so that He can spend time in prayer. Verse 23, so after all of this exhaustion, He went up on a mountainside by Himself to pray. He knows things we do not know and has food to eat we know not of. But He knows what the tired soul needs. And it isn't always time in the armchair. 
The soul is restored through prayer. So if you're tired and it, it keeps you away from prayer meeting, let me encourage you to come and find a sufficient and a satisfactory and a better rest in Christ. That's one of the benefits of praying together. Your soul will be built up. It, it really will be revived and it will knit you together with other believers as you seek the Lord as one. We are born again to be a praying people. It is the language, uh, uh, the Christian's native tongue. And you have to understand this. Nothing that you want to see happen, and I mean nothing in your life or anywhere, your children being saved, the church being preserved, your soul being strengthened, sin overcome, nation transformed, reconciliation taking place between estranged parties, the kingdom of God advancing, and on and on and on. None of it happens apart from prayer. All the effort in the world without prayer is worthless. Listen, the church is not primarily a need-meeting organization. It's not primarily a social organization or a political organization. The church is first and foremost a supernatural organization that is that functions and is sustained and is advanced by the power of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit who is moved by the prayers of His people. The prayers of a righteous man. The effectual prayers accomplish much. The church is called a house of prayer. doesn't mean we don't meet needs or work in society and culture and all of these things, but they're done through prayer. And so we must not only be a, a people of the book who love theology and to do what the Lord reveals in Scripture, we must also be people of prayer who depend on God for every good thing. And we're called to seek Him together. Well, let's pray. Lord, who is like You, God? You are our Father who is in heaven. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And I ask, Lord, that You would write on our hearts and show us our great dependence, that we wouldn't trust in the arm of the flesh or be too busy to ignore it, but that we would be a people who pray it is, Lord, who can say, I have the ear of Almighty God? Lord, if we had the ear of any of the mighty men in this world willingly, and they delighted to hear us, we would be constantly going to them. Lord, increase our faith. Decrease our independence that we would be often and regularly seeking Your face. And Lord, seeking Your face together. So that if a, someone were to come and see Christ Community Church, they would say with Your Son, this is a house of prayer. It's in Jesus' name we ask Amen.